This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're going to spend the hour today talking about wolves, both real ones like the wild canines who reintroduced themselves to Oregon over the last 24 years or so, as well as the wolves we have constructed as humans, the wolves of our imagination, our stories, our myths. The Portland writer Erica Berry has spent much of the last decade on the trail of both of these animals. The result is her new book, Wolfish. Wolf, self, and the stories we tell about fear. The once world-famous OR7 trots through this narrative. But the book is at least as much the story of how Barry came to see the historical and cultural contexts for the things that scare us. A context that helped her not to eradicate her own fears, but to coexist with them. Erica Berry, welcome to Think Out Loud. Thanks so much. So nice to be here. I thought we could start with a passage from early on in the book. It is about the first wolf to come back to Oregon in about 50 years. She crossed the Snake River from Idaho in 1999. Sure. As the wolf shook the river from her back, droplets constellated in the frozen air. She was a yearling, nearly full-grown, the runt of her litter. Almost waist-high on a grown man, her weight around 65 pounds, her coat the gradient of stone, the color, perhaps, of that day's January sky. Her winter underfur was so thick the cold did not even reach her bones. She was a descendant of the Canadian wolves reintroduced to Idaho just a couple of years earlier as part of an effort to restore the American gray wolf populations that had been slaughtered to extinction in the early 20th century. Around her neck, the radio collar given by the Idaho Department of Fish and Wildlife, IDFW, was a dull and nearly forgotten weight. B-45, that's what they were calling her the 45th wolf to be collared in Idaho, one node of a federal wolf recovery program that the Nez Perce tribe was working with the IDFW to implement. With each step, her saucer-sized paws splintered the lattice of icy crystals that frosted the earth. Turning tail to the river, she climbed into the snow and the vanilla-scented air of hundred-year-old ponderosa pines. If a bald eagle cut the sky above her, she heard it. If a rabbit threw itself into a snowy burrow, she smelled it. A wolf can average eight to ten hours a day of travel, often moving in the seams between night and day, ten miles, twenty, thirty, forty, more. She had left her family in east-central Idaho to look for the three things any young wolf needed to survive, a mate, a meal, and defensible territory— And she did not know that in climbing onto this far shore of the snake, she had crossed a border, not just a state line, but a line of history. Because she had been fitted a year earlier with a radio collar, her movements were legible to humans, and she was now superlative, the first known member of her species to step into Oregon in over 50 years. As in much of continental America, wolves had not lived here since the state's last wolf bounty was paid to a trapper in the 1940s. When B-45 arrived, she came as both the dawn of the future and a relic from the past. B-45 seems to me a title ill-suited for a majestic animal and more appropriate for a chemical used to color breakfast cereal, wrote one skeptical editor of an Eastern Oregon newspaper. 
When the Nez Perce tribe and an environmental conservation group held a contest to name her, Freedom won. A local conservationist began to call her Eve. I want to come back to wolves in Oregon, but let's start with a, a bigger picture here. Can you give us a sense for wolves' ubiquity both on global landscapes and in human stories and language? Yeah, you know, I think, so wolves were one of the most widely distributed land mammals around the world. Um, and this was true. You had wolves in deserts, you have them in ice flows, you have them essentially in every landscape. And I think now that there's some reason why they're also then walk through so many of our stories, like they're just the animal that um, people would have been encountering. And I also think there's something about the spectral howl of a wolf that creates a kind of, I don't know, a sonic breadcrumb. Like you don't see the thing, but you hear it. Hmm. And I've thought a lot about like, what is the quality of a wolf that makes them appear in our stories? And I think a lot of this is the parallels between wolves and humans and their groupings. And you think like, we look to wolves and we see a creature that might mate for life, collaboratively takes care of young, are working together, sometimes on the same territory. Wolves will pass territory on through different generations sometimes. Um, and so there's this sense of parallel, of sort of foil. The wolf becomes a foil for ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, there are wolf stories just across time and space to a degree that I did not understand going into this project. Like, Does any animal that, that you're aware of match the wolf for, for the extent to which humans tell stories and have idioms and have myths about them? I don't, I mean, I think like snakes maybe occupy a somewhat, there, there's a similarity um, in terms of their ubiquity, say on every continent. I mean, wolves are literally on every continent. And so, yeah, I, I do think the wolf is a sort of a singular place and there have been bounties on wolves for thousands of years um, the first story that you really explore in detail both historically and in your own life is little red riding hood um, and the first person to write down a version of the fairy tale that is close to the one that that i'm familiar with and probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with was a french nobleman in the 17th century named charles perrault um, it doesn't end well for Little Red in his telling. She gets eaten along with her grandmother. And then unlike the Brothers Grimm's mm -hmm. version where the huntsman um, saves them, that doesn't happen in, in this version that was written down by Perrault. But he does end with a moral. Mm -hmm. um, could you read that for us? Yeah, sure. Moral. Children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers, for if they should do so, they may well provide dinner for a wolf. I say wolf, but there are various kinds of wolves. There are also those who are charming, quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, and sweet, who pursue young women at home and in the streets. And unfortunately, it is these gentle wolves who are the most dangerous of all. That's not particularly subtle in terms of, of the... the lesson who this lesson mm -hmm. is for especially for attractive well-bred girls mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my God. there's just it's a constant eye roll reading it right? uh, yeah so where what are the boys or the men who encounter this story who encountered this story what, what are they supposed to take from it i think this is one of the things that 
insofar as Little Red Riding Hood is an instructive story, it's instructive toward the girls, right? And this sense that only the girl can keep herself on the right path. Um, and yeah, that was that was one of the things that originally troubled me about it was um, the boy has two roles he can play. He's either the wolf or he's the woodcutter in the later versions. The Brothers Grimm introduced the woodcutter. and He could be the, 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 the savage beast or the savior. Yeah, exactly. And both of those, um, that's... <laughs> Not the way that I, and also, you know, for the girl, she can either be like the mother or a grandmother who's sort of guileless and failing to protect, or the girl who's the victim. And so I think, you know, my entryway to Little Red Riding Hood was frustrated with the way the wolf was depicted in it. But at a certain point, I was like, my own sort of body as a young woman is ensnared in this story. But also, yeah, like there are these larger gendered uh, dynamics that are sort of shaped by the echoes of this of this story. I don't know what the 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 men who read it um there's a savior complex like embedded in it that I'm uncomfortable with. You write might today's anthropomorphized metaphor of the big bad wolf have roots in a real life legacy of masculine violence. What's the historical legacy that you're referring to here? Yeah, you know, at some point I thought, okay, so the largest conflation of wolf in my head is this symbolic idea of wolf as sort of violent man. And I started trying to trace back, like, how far back does that go? And you find in language in Sanskrit and Prussian and Iranian, the words for wolf and evildoer are really tied. I started thinking, like, why is that? And found this sort of legacy of proto-Indo-European warrior men who would leave home around this sort of coming of age time and go together in these warrior bands um, often taking on the characteristics or traits of wolves, and meaning what? Like what? What characteristics? I mean, there, there's pillage. I mean, this is hard, right? Because wolves don't really do these things. But there was a level of ferocity in what they were. The sexual violence. There was thievery. There was, I don't know, again, real wolves not doing these things. But in the warrior codes, there was a sense that like you don't need to act like a human. You can maybe kill with abandon in this sense. Like there was, um, there were these sacrifices or people would maybe eat, there would be canine bones that were used, like the wolf as a sort of warrior totem, um, but was also letting people off the hook to not have to do their normal human codes of etiquette. Um, And so that is like thousands of years ago, men acting as wolves are sort of like pillaging their way across Europe. And that was really interesting to me to think like, okay, this metaphor is actually, that goes back to the start of the English language as we know it now. Um, And so that seed of that metaphor is so old. um, And yeah, we've inherited it almost in the language itself. (laughs) One of the things that strikes me about this, and and you, you deal with this in the book, is that even then, even in you know, times before recorded history in a lot of ways, it seems like humans were already trying to explain away very human behavior by mm-hmm. by otherizing it, by, by blaming it on these on these wolves when when wolves by, by their nature as as predators, mm-hmm. they're very different. I mean mm-hmm. they're they're, they're the, you know, 
bands of human men going around and marauding and raping uh, and murdering, it's it's very different from what wolves do just to survive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like the fundamental reason why these wolf metaphors break down is that wolves do not kill out of cruelty. I mean, it's like it's out of survival, right? And I think, um, yeah, you look at so many in so many indigenous stories, there's a more sort of like hybrid porosity between animal and human. And in that sense, like, is a wolf showing human traits or is a human showing wolf traits? Like the very idea of sort of anthropomorphization um, doesn't always hold up when you think like, is this wolf being like a human? Or maybe this is just a way of acting that wolves take care of their young, for example, um, collaboratively. Are they, is that like humans or are humans when we take care of our young being like wolves? You know, like I became sort of interested in the um, feedback loop between how we look at animals as ways of making sense of ourselves and vice versa, project outward. I wonder if you could tell us a story of a, a kind of pack that you encountered when you were just starting college mm-hmm. um, and walking through one of the greens. Yeah. So I went to school in New England. Um, and my experience there was definitely this sense of sort of feeling like a foreigner um, in some ways. And one night I was walking home from the library and saw a group of guys walking toward me across the quad. And it's one of those things where I think so many people, so many women, so many non-binary folks, but you experience like the, this could be something scary because it's dark and there's a group walking toward me. And then you're sort of like, note that red flag and step away from it and think like, surely not, surely this is me overreacting. And so I had that experience and I continued walking towards them. And as they got closer to me, I saw that it wasn't just a group of students walking from the library, that they were men or boys um, wearing t-shirts on their head with sort of like uh, slashes cut for eye holes. And they had socks on their hands, um, making their hands effectively these like paws. And we sort of approached each other, and I could have run at that point, but I just was sort of in disbelief. Um, they surrounded me, and we sort of stared at each other for a minute, and I, I didn't know how to narrate what was going on in my head. I felt terrified. Um, these people who their identities were disguised, of course, and I was expecting for something to happen. And after a few seconds or time, I mean, time stopped in that moment, nothing did happen. I pushed through their hands. I ran back to the dorm. I called them into security and I was worried they were going to hurt someone else. Um, And it turns out that they were a soccer team or soccer players that had been hazed. And I think I thought of them later reading about these sort of warrior bands of young men, right? And this idea that under the disguise of animal people act in ways that they wouldn't own as humans. Um, and the the boys in this situation, they sort of wanted to apologize to me. The, the, the narrative told to me by the college was they never meant harm. Hmm. They're basically like sheep in wolf's clothing, right? And I think what was interesting for me as a, as a woman who hadn't yet experienced the moment where I'm moving through the public world and the thing that I think will not be a threat actually is a threat or like it, it sort of, it brought me into this waiting room of fear. I think of where nothing bad happened after that, you know, there was no physical assault altercation, 
but it changed my perspective of how bad it feels to be in that moment where it might be a tipping point. Hmm. And I think I one of the reasons the story stood out to me later was that I really didn't know how to narrate it. Like, had I been a victim? Had these men, I mean, they might not have meant harm, but they still did harm, right? That doesn't let them off the hook. Um, but I think it made me think so much about Little Red Riding Hood again and this idea. I can still picture this, the choreography of this scene. Like we were in the trees, you know, um, all of our shadows kind of in this little forest grove at this very idyllic campus. And of course, I'm thinking about the stories I've been told about what will happen to my body in the forest. And as a woman who grew up hiking in Oregon and loving to camp alone and do all these things, um, I was resistant to telling myself that kind of story. I want to go back to the the mother in the, the story because mm-hmm. she, she has another important role that, that often people don't pay a ton of attention to because the wolf and the grandmother and Little Red Riding Hood mm-hmm. occupies, you know, so much of our imagination. But she's the one who, who says, you know, watch out, take, you know, deliver this stuff and be careful. But she does send her daughter mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. How have you come to think about that act mm-hmm. of sending, of giving a warning, but also letting go? I mean, I hate to say that I've been thinking of it today a lot um, in the last 24 hours since hearing about this the shooting yesterday um, in the preschool, right? And I think the sense that to be a caretaker is to be constantly thinking about how to dose fear for those around you. Meaning, dose meaning give it out. G- give, give it out, out. Exactly. small amounts of fear. Mm-hmm. Or figure out what dosage, <laughs> how much you should give, right? Like this mother in the story is evaluating how scary the forest is. And she's saying, like, be careful of this, be careful of this, but also, like, get to grandmother's house. We need you to do this errand. And there is a sort of bravery uh, in that moment. Like, I came to really think, like, I want the mother to keep sending the daughter out there. Just like when Little Red Riding Hood is walking, even though she's heard her mother's concerns, she stops to, like, look at the butterfly on the, you know, all of these storytellings from Brothers Grimm to Peralt are, like, talking about where her gaze goes in a way that is really interesting because it's like punishing her for being curious and punishing her for getting distracted to look at the squirrel and talk to the wolf and also to look at the flowers, right? As if those things are all equivalent and also as if like reigning in our curiosity will keep us safe, which I just don't believe, you know? It's also an an absurd thing for a purported storyteller to to be giving that message. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, and I also think, honestly, I think about one of the things – I learned about young wolves, which is that they're they're born so afraid. Like, as an animal, wolves are fearful. But as they're young, you get used to going to explore and uh, investigate the things that sort of scare you. So if I hear a bird in a tree and I'm a young wolf, I'm going to be a little bit on edge, but I'm going to go investigate it. And that idea of fear and curiosity, sort of like inquiry being tied, I think is really interesting. And similarly, like, Again, so to go back to Little Red Riding Hood, the girl is curious and the mother is still telling her to go out on this adventure. And I think like I want I wanted that for myself and I wanted this when I thought about um, the messages that I give to I'm not a mother, but as a teacher, a caretaker, a guide of outdoor trips for young people. Um, how, how would you describe the the dosages of fear that you were given that, that were yeah. – um, that that were provided to you and that you metabolized? I think 
you know, I did come of age in this sort of girl power era of the 2000s where there was this real, like, anything is possible if you put your mind to it idea. And I think that I, the sense that I should be afraid as a woman was not, I will say, that felt like a very rusty scaffolding that had sort of been dismantled. I went to- But very consciously, right? I mean, your parents consciously did Mm -hmm. not give you that message. Exactly. I think so. Yeah. And I've heard this, you know, talking to other people sort of of my millennial generation, like, I think it was part of this, you know, this the girl empowerment was like, we're not going to tell you to be afraid. Part of this was also like my white girlhood and the ways that I was able to move through a world where um, people wanted to protect me and people saw me as a girl that was worthy of uh, my girlhood was granted right not everyone gets a girlhood and not everyone is allowed to be seen as a as a victim but I I didn't feel like a victim until I went to this great summer camp well uh, there were some moments that were really exciting Uh, it was kind of in a meadow in Eugene we ate a lot of tofu pasta salad Um, (laughs) they stole our wristwatches that brought me a lot of angst but um, it was a girl empowerment camp, essentially, from this very kind of Pacific Northwest um, hippie-adjacent thing. But I realized, ultimately, the lessons we were being taught were somewhat conservative, which was, like, the boys are out to get us. And I remember, like, sitting around in a circle with these other girls, and we were sort of told, like, if you go on a date, the man just wants to sleep with you, and da-da-da-da-da. And it was a—I um, I didn't— trust that message. I think at that point, I felt like I wanted to think for myself more. And so I sort of grew up in my adolescence feeling like I was just pushing myself constantly toward things that scared me. I was traveling alone, living alone. Oh, take a train by myself across the country solo without a sleeper car, 100%. Like, do it for the story, do it for the adventure. That was very much in my sort of uh, coding. And, you know, to go back to wolves, like some wolves just do they're just riskier than others so like we don't know why some wolves do that i i was anxious but i was pushing myself toward things that scared me Hmm. and that changed in my early 20s i had a couple experiences that rewired and made me consider that the stories i'd inherited um i didn't trust them i didn't trust the stories i'd been told about fear and i also realized i needed new stories because i was having trouble feeling brave Hmm. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking right now with the Portland writer, Erica Berry. Her new book is called Wolfish. Let's let's go from the kind of the stories of interpersonal fear about wolves and how they shape our individual lives uh, in, a, in a very gendered way to the stories of, of making countries and, and creating borders and, and putting up walls. How is wolf killing? embedded in early Oregon history, even pre-statehood Oregon history. Yeah, I mean, this was a fascinating thing that I did not grow up knowing. But, you know, early Oregon, you have these French-Canadian fur-trading Catholics versus the sort of English pioneer Methodists, and they weren't coming together um, until you have the creation of the presence of a threat. And so it was wolves, cougars, and bears. Um, And in 1843, there were two meetings called to discuss this threat to livestock. they're now referred to pretty exclusively as the wolf meetings. Um, and the idea was that everyone sort of agreed, bonded over the fact that the community needed a way to stop this, you know, quote, immediate destruction. And so the first local tax in the territory was a bounty 
to fund a bounty for dead predators. And a white hunter would get what is about $100 in today's money for a pelt. Um, Native American residents got half of that amount. So already, like, the expulsion of animals was a way of also ordering the power dynamics of people there, right? And um, this worked well. A local government ended up being voted on. And so people saw that this bounty was doing something for them. And it really became the, the groundwork for the legislation, what did the, the mass hunting and poisoning of wolves in the territories or colonies 200 years before that or later the states in the U.S., what did it actually entail? I mean, what did it look like? I mean, you had these, like, you'd get out, you'd kill a wolf, you'd bring it in to the town clerk. Sometimes they'd punch a hole in the ear so that you couldn't turn it in twice. And, you know, these pelts were piled up. There were stories of... You know, by you have these frozen rivers in the winter, and there'd be piles of pelts waiting for the river to thaw so that they could, you know, bring the pelts downstream. And the scale of this, I think, is hard to imagine. Um, there, Carter Niemeyer, former um, worked in wolf management in Montana and Idaho, and he tells stories of these like poisonous uh, poles of sort of poison that would be set around in Montana, and just vast numbers of uh, animals would pile up around them. And I think what we forget is that if you poison, say, um, a livestock, right, or a buffalo and put it on the prairie, it's not just going to kill the wolves that eat it, but also the squirrels, the crows, the magpies. There are these sort of like ripples of death outward. Um, there were even accounts that like an animal would, their saliva as this an animal died, say, from this poison would poison the grass, and then animals that ate the grass would die. And so I think like understanding the ripples of what this sort of government-funded killing campaign in early American history did to the West, um, the scale of it was was hard for me to imagine. Could you read us an excerpt from the chapter you have about this? For as long as white people have been coming to America, they have been kindling the story of their own belonging, erasing the stories of early inhabitants, in part by conflating them with animals. One piece of 17th century legislation in Massachusetts said that whoever shall shoot off a gun on any unnecessary occasion or at any game except an Indian or a wolf shall forfeit five shillings for every shot as if shooting a wolf or a native meant nothing at all. The work of statehood is at first the work of boundary creation, not just erecting a border, but policing it, deciding who do you let in, who do you push out? If I once thought these questions were posed in one way about humans and another about animals, the wolf has shown me otherwise. Often it is only by anthropomorphizing animals and animalizing humans that the fictions that necessitate human borders can be propped up at all. Can you contrast that Euro-American approach of wolf eradication and fear and and othering with the the Kalapuya creation story um, that the tribal elder Esther Stutzman has shared? Yeah, I mean, the wolf is very central to this creation story. And I think it's important to remember that the Kalapudya native land is the same homeland where the wolf meetings are later happening. So it's... Right it, in the Willamette Valley. Exactly, yeah. So basically, um, the top of at the top of a mountain, Earth's first woman, Lelu, had two babies. She's a mother. 
And she basically meets Mother Wolf as she's coming down the mountain. She's just been brought onto this earth. And she uh, has to go explore the world. And the mother wolf says, I'll watch your children. And she feels a little bit afraid, but she decides to weave a pack basket and give the babies to the wolf and um, puts a band around the foreheads of the babies so they don't fall out. And she goes out and she explores. And when she comes back, the babies are fine. The wolf's been taking care of them and their foreheads are slightly flattened. And sort of from that idea, she says, from now on, our people will flatten the foreheads of their babies in honor of Mother Wolf, who took such good care of my babies. Um, That's Stutzman's words. So this idea of the wolf as a sort of mother protector shepherd is very much as much of an Oregon story, as much as a story of this land as this idea of extermination and the wolf meetings. We got to take a quick break, but coming up after this, we're going to talk about werewolves, about crying wolf, about OR7, and as much as we can fit to the next 24 minutes. Stay tuned. From the Gerd Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with the Portland author Erica Berry. Her new book is called Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear. You can see Erica tomorrow night at 6 p.m. at Broadway Books in Portland. What interested you most when you started to dig into the ancient stories about the boy who cried wolf? I think at one point somebody pointed out to me that it becomes a sort of interesting counterbalance to Little Red Riding Hood and that I think both of these are stories that young people hear quite a lot. Um, But in The Boy Who Cried Wolf, he's believed people come to his aid until they're not. And I think with Little Red Riding Hood, it's so easy to imagine if a girl had been in that case um, being doubted by saying there's a threat. And of course, this comes to sort of like the modern uh, conceptions of the boy who cried wolf, it's very often referred to as a woman, I found, um, and this idea of not believing women. I think I became really interested in the idea that if somebody lies, uh, there's often some, who who is the audience to that lie and are they believed, right? And the stories that we're told about threat, um, they, they speak to our own identities and communities and uh, the sort of like privilege of whether and of belief. Belief is this thing that we choose to grant to people. Hmm. Um, and that was compelling to me. In that story, um, the, it's, the, the boy is lying, meaning he, mm-hmm. he knows he's saying something that's not true. Mm-hmm. But you also dig into um, trickier situations that are maybe are more likely mm-hmm. when we're not necessarily sure what we're seeing or we're not sure if we should be afraid of something. How do you reckon with with that version of, is this a quote unquote wolf or not? Yeah. There was a French phrase that I came across in my research, and pardon, I hope my high school French teacher isn't listening to this, but entre chien et loup, which refers to this hour between a dog and a wolf, this kind of dusk time. And I think the way that this phrase was used was that at this time of day, you're walking down a path and you cannot tell if it is a dog or a wolf before you, if you are right to be afraid, if you are not. And there's a level of evaluation in that moment where you're thinking not just about the stories you've been told about what you will encounter, but like what your body Um, what you see and what you think will happen to your body. And I think that um, story is one of evaluating threat. And The Boy Who Cried Wolf, um, I yeah, I did became very interested in moments where 
throughout history and in my own life, I had potentially said something was, was I right to feel afraid, right? Was I right to evaluate this thing as a wolf, quote unquote, instead of a dog? Um, and I think so often those situations are so murky, um, you know, it's not as clear. I, one of the, the things I was interested in this book was like breaking down the sort of apparatus of predator and prey. Who gets to be predator and who gets to be prey and what does that mean? Those are not fixed states. Those are like projections and they're, they can, we can sort of oscillate between them. You write that to decide what's a dog and what's a wolf is to, quote, weigh the cost of fear to yourself against the cost of fear to the creature before you. Um, but I think we'd, we'd only actually do that second part if we care about the outcome for, for that creature in front of us. I mean, if we see th- their life as a life that matters. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that if, if, what you, if you imagine that it's just a kind of monster that has no worth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's such a good question. I think it's one of the reasons why... People say, trust your gut instincts around fear. And at the time I was working on this book, I thought there's no way I can trust my gut instincts. They're wired from, if I'm watching local news every night and there's a certain um, fear that is being produced and sold to me to try to, there's a, there's a, fear is always a tool, I think. When beginning to see it in that way, like who is it benefiting and who is it harming, um, it becomes hard to trust your own instincts around it. And a lot of places, either there's a voice inside you or an actual person who says, you know, no, this is X thing is not really the 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 the, the main thing that you should worry about because it's so unlikely. Mm-hmm. And the the thinking is that actuarial tables or statistics can mm-hmm. um, free us from fears if mm-hmm. there's a. 0.002% chance that that X thing is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But h- how can, can, does, totally. that, does, it, does it work that we do statistics prevent us from being afraid of things? I mean, I quote the high wire artist, Philippe Petit in the book, and he knows something about fear, right? And he, he he's said, the guy who, who famously strung a wire between the, the World Trade Centers soon after they were erected. Exactly. And there's yeah, an extraordinary... Um, individual who walked across it, and yeah, and well, and he his quote is something like, "Fear is an absence of knowledge." Like I wouldn't do what he did. I, it's, I don't know. I don't. I can't totally square that quote with like <laughs> what, <laughs> with he, what did. he does. Um, but I do think I thought a lot about this. Where okay, so say in the last eighteen years in North America, there have been I think twelve wolf attacks. Only two of those o- fatal on people. On people, exactly. And compared to dogs. Um, compared to toddlers with guns, compared to falling vending machines, ladders, cows. Let alone driving. Drive, exactly. Um, That is such a comparatively small risk, right? And so I think part of the question with coming into this book is I was looking at real wolves and seeing the ways that they were made into these specters of fear and culturally people were talking about these wolves are going to kill your children, right? And thinking that fear is irrational. And at the same time, I was personally not afraid of wolves, but I was maybe walking down the sidewalk feeling like I'm worried that I'm going to be attacked. But it it, it did happen to you at one point. I, uh, what what I what I think it's fair to call yeah. an attack. A stranger yeah. put his hands on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It is. It, 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 yeah. Bad things happen. I know. And I think that is like, that's the thing to square is you do, um, 
you can know that the statistically that this was sort of the crux of the start of my research was I knew statistically it's a low odd that I'm going to be grabbed walking down the sidewalk. But the minute that happens to you, which it did right as I was starting graduate school, it you you expect it everywhere, right? And so I began to think like either I have to try to change the world I'm living in to eliminate threats in some way. Or I have to change the stories in my brain because I was having trouble understanding how to do, how to go through the world. And part of this was like reporting. Like I I wrote this book at first thinking it started as an environmental studies thesis. And I thought I'm just going to report on wolves academically, historically, scientifically. And then I would go on these reporting trips and have these moments where I felt like I was afraid for my own life. It was like this sort of smear of grease on my the lens that I was looking through, right? And I couldn't wipe it off. Um, and I thought, are other writers just better at hiding this? So I wanted this book to capture my own sense of not just observing a subject, but also sometimes being observed and like trying to interrogate the narratives that I felt like at times I would think, oh, I feel a bit like a victim right now, but when am I actually maybe also predatory because I'm walking on stolen land or because I have a certain um, institutional affiliation that gives me a sense of privilege in certain corners where I might be researching and, you know, trying to understand those sort of like intersections of uh, power, they have helped me sort of rewire fear. I think so often when we talk about fear, we think about it as like, how do you grow out of it? But I wanted to think about like, how do we grow into it? Um, And that maybe that's the way to move past it is to like, take apart the wiring. One of the ways um, that you changed your conception of your power in the world or your relationship to um, your your power is <laughs> is I shouldn't laugh. It's, it's it's terrifying, but you write about it in in various ways, including ways that, that with perspective have humor. This is when you were in Sicily um, and mistakenly. Um, picked some greens for a meal for you and two of your uh, friends at that mm-hmm. point, um, mistakenly because they were they were poisonous. It's something mm-hmm. called mandrake. It's in Harry Potter. It's like the screaming root baby that has the the legs are these sort of yeah the roots. Um, so that's that's Harry Potter world. Mm-hmm. What happened when an actual um, human person, not Muggle, ate them? Well, it turns out that you know. Part of the reason they're in Harry Potter and also in Shakespeare, they have this great um, mythological history I did not know about. This was not research, but um, the roots are sort of a hallucinogenic potentially, but the leaves are quite toxic and you do hallucinate as well. But um, we just ate the leaves. So I pretty much started hallucinating and we found ourselves, we were unable to throw them up once we realized what we'd done. And um, my one of my colleagues, essentially, he entered a coma um, within a few hours. And we were in rural Sicily and couldn't. We were at a hospital by that point, um, And I was sort of strapped to one bed. My whole body was shaking. Um, we knew what we'd done at that point, but not how lethal it was or not how we didn't know what was going to happen to us. Right. And we couldn't speak the language. Uh, there were a number of things that made it extremely terrifying. But I remember lying in this bed my heart rate was really, really low, and there's these sort of sirens going off, and hearing my colleague, um, strapped, he was strapped to the bed at this point because his body was shaking so much, and at some point he went quiet. His, he stopped shaking, and he'd been screaming, and he stopped, and I thought that I'd killed him 
in that moment. I thought, wow, this thing that I've um, picked, and he was a horticulturalist, so he had sort of identified it. I felt like, well, we were all complicit in some ways. But um, he's dead, and I now have eaten the second largest serving of this, and I'm going to die next. And so I spent the course of this night in this hospital feeling like I'd killed my friend, or like I'd helped, contributed to his death, right? Uh, certainly not intentionally, but also that it was going to kill me. And I think like that headspace, I could not shake for so long, even after I knew that he had emerged from the coma and we were both, we were all relatively unscathed, thank goodness. What's the connection between that experience and werewolves? Because it, it is, this story is embedded in a chapter um, where you talk about the the lore of people turning into wolf monsters. Yeah, I mean, so interesting to hear that some of the earliest werewolf stories are potentially rooted in people having these encounters with poisonous plants, essentially with drugs, right? Where they would sort of like act bestially or think that they were animals. And reading this at first, I'm just sort of thinking, oh, that is kind of what happened that night. Like at one point we were driving to the hospital and my colleague who was very ill, he, he sort of sprang out of the door. And I remember it was a full moon and he started just like running up a hill. Like he was lost his mind, right? And like this word lunatic comes from Luna. We think about werewolves and there's all this history there. But then researching actually Sicilian werewolf stories about wolves in these legends, um, there's actually legacy in the Mediterranean on Corsica specifically of these, they were called dream hunters, the Miseri, these women who would take mandrake potentially and have these crazy sort of hallucinatory dreams where they were beasts and they were sort of predatory. And I think that combined with this experience that I had, which is that for the course of a night, uh, I was transformed, he was transformed, and then it sort of, we woke up and we were ostensibly back in our old bodies, like everything was fine, and yet you carry the memory of this transformation that has happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it allowed me to think about what werewolf stories do for us culturally, um, how they allow us to, to, to think about sort of darkness inside ourselves that we maybe don't have a language for. Could you read us uh, from the end of that chapter? When I think back to that year in Sicily, I see myself as a kaleidoscope of selves wheeling through that poppy-studded countryside, the color from oneself always tinting the color of another, no barriers between them, only the truth of their murkiness, the truth of feeling like a foreigner and like I belonged that I was lonely and loved, consuming and producing, helping and harming. When I now think of that self in the hospital, hallucinating as she ran through the halls, I feel tenderness. She who had surrendered to her transformation, she who could not imagine it would pass. At the same time, I feel a tenderness toward the other self, the one who picked the leaves, whistling as she brought them in. She did not know it at the time, but she too was in the throes of transformation, living a life, an ocean away from the people she loved, but also a little further from her fear. If, in my American life, fear so often drove the boat, here in Sicily the engine was pleasure. Maybe eating almost brought me death, but so often at the cooking school it had also shaken me out of my speculative anxiety and lifted me closer to life." I can look back now and see I should have been more cautious, but I can also see how good it felt not to think about caution at all. To accept that living in a body meant sometimes losing control over it. 
Annie Dillard describes animal appetite as living in the physical sense without bias or motive. Eating is when I am my most wolf. When I eat, I am most grounded in my body and the world. I forget the whine in my head that says the future is too scary or I am too cowardly to face it. As Ligaya Mishan writes in the New York Times, eating forces us to confront what we do to others and so fear our own devouring of becoming food for worms, as the saying goes, upon death. If eating is a confrontation with mortality, it is also a buffer against its shadow. We feed our bones so they can face another day. When I think of a ravenous wolf now, I do not see a specter of horror. I see a body wired with instinct, a body on the brink of joy. We started with um, the first wolf nicknamed Eve, who uh, came to Oregon in over 50 years back in 1999. I want to end with the most famous wolf in recent Oregon history, OR7. I say famous, but probably for the newest Oregonians, they may never have heard of this guy. Who was OR7? You know, Newsweek called him the most famous wolf of all time, I think. So (laughs) (laughs) we have that. Um, Yeah, I mean, he dispersed from his pack in northeastern Oregon in September 2011. He's called OR7 because he was the seventh wolf collared in Oregon by biologists. And he starts walking west. And at that point, um, there were other wolves dispersing. It's relatively common behavior for a young wolf to do. But OR7 quickly started breaking records. He became the first wolf in Western Oregon and then the first wolf in California since wolves had been exterminated in the mid-20th century. And so around the time he's racking up these sort of like thousands of mile journeys, um, he starts getting this huge following. There's Twitter accounts devoted to him, Facebook pages, the National Enquirer writes about him. Um, There's a bumper sticker that says OR7 for president. The New York Times says it's almost cult-like status. There's a naming competition that Oregon Wild runs and multiple um, young people submit the same name, Journey. And in that moment, sort of the headlines are like, don't stop believing, here he is, he's looking for love, there's no other wolves around. And I think that's what it was, right? Like he was in these areas where there weren't other wolves. And it became this example of people watching OR7 rooting for him, not across the board, of course, a certain public. Um, He was sort of stoking different feelings in different people. And I was in college at the time on the East Coast and thinking like, well, I'm just going to watch the people watch OR7. Like, it's really interesting to witness how this wolf is being talked about. And of course, like, I was watching him too, you know. Hmm. What, um, looking back now, what most strikes you about the fervor behind the the interest in Mm -hmm. OR7? I think there was this really... um, On the one hand, there's a sort of easy rom-com narrative to it where people were seeing very much projecting, um, I think, onto this wolf. Is this wolf going to find a mate? Is this wolf going to be able to start a pack? At the same time, beneath it is this sort of um, a desire for uh, forgiveness, I think, is is maybe the right word. Like white settlers had exterminated the wolves in Oregon, and there was a degree of, well, wolves are coming back now. We didn't bring them back. And OR7 was sort of a totem of what was possible, maybe, um, in a sense of rewilding or a sense of a wolf coming back, right, where there were had been no wolves. I think it's important to note that, like, 
the story, he did find another mate, and talking to one of the biologists, he was like, people thought that uh, we planted her. You know, there was so much skepticism. Because it was too much of a meat cute to go back to your, your rom-com yes, idea. Yes, exactly, completely. And yet they start this pack, and um, they sort of, in eastern Jackson, western Klamath counties, the rogue pack, um, OR7 becomes a grandfather. There's, there's, like, you know, local papers, the Medford paper, they're following every time he crosses the border. Like, he's a grandfather. He's bringing home the bacon. There was a real sense of following this one wolf. And I think it becomes, you know, there's a word in birding, a spark bird is the bird that gets you interested in birding. And I think like OR7 was sort of like the spark wolf for a lot of people where it was hard to like grapple with these larger themes of wolf repopulation, but through one animal, we can understand that, right? And um, the rogue pack though is responsible for a number of confirmed depredations. And I think it's interesting. I, the story of OR7 is also interesting because it's it's complicated, right? He's not a the wolf. Um, it's not just about a wolf finding a partner. It's also about a wolf becoming entangled with uh, livestock producers and their pack. And so one of the headlines sort of said he was a model citizen, and then he turned his pack toward livestock predation. And of course, like he was never <laughs> either of those things. He was just a wolf, <laughs> like going about doing what wolves do. And so that gap. Um, yeah. What have you heard from ranchers a- about this book since since it's come out, if anything? I had a really interesting conversation last week with mm-hmm. one of the producers I talked to who told me that he was two-thirds of the way through the book, and he had been uh, he'd understood that the book was about real wolves but he had not fully understood the degree to which it was sort of a sociological exploration and he just said I'm sitting here, and he is one of the uh, ranchers who'd had depredations from OR7's pack in his land. So wolves were a very clear, concrete thing that he's thinking about, right? And yet he said, I'm reading your book, and I'm realizing that I was the symbolic – I was a wolf in my youth. That's what he said. Do you know what he meant by that? He started talking about the degree to which, as a young man – he'd occupy the world in a certain way and not questioned the way he moved through it. And he started talking about someone in his family who'd experienced um, violence as a woman and sort of processing that and the relationship between um, the way his, the power dynamics that ensnared his own body. And I think like that's one of the things about this book that um, I couldn't, it feels like such a gift that people are encountering both the real wolves and the symbolic wolves and maybe thinking differently about both and also like reading their own bodies into it in a way. I always wanted um, it to not just be about the body of the wolf, but also our own um, our own selves. And the porousness of all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the ways that like the creation of a wolf depends on this kind of counterweight um, of self. And we, if we define the wolf as an other, then we're also defining ourselves. Erica, thanks very much, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Erica Berry's new book is called Wolfish, Wolf Self and the Stories We Tell About Fear. You can see her tomorrow night at 6 p.m. at Portland's Broadway Books. Tomorrow on this show, the Federal Trade Commission reported that romance scammers swindled roughly $1.3 billion last year. We'll hear from a reporter about one Portland man's dramatic story of catfishing, car theft, and more. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva. 
the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.